Welcome to Saturday evening Torah class, an in-depth interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 23, Leviticus chapter 16. You know, one of the greater challenges that faces believers who are <laughs> slowly awakening to our Hebrew faith roots and this undeniable reality that our Messiah Jesus is fully Jewish. <laughs> That's right. And, you know, a giant gasp, fully Jewish Jesus, is how to deal with this purely and entirely Hebrew cultural context of the entire Word of God. Another challenge that's sort of tangled up with that is one that comes not from Christian doctrines, but rather from Jewish doctrines. And this is generally called tradition. And as we studied the dietary laws contained in Torah, which is commonly called kashrut by the Jews, and, but which the Gentile community calls kosher eating, we should have noticed at once just how short the section on dietary law is in Leviticus 11 and how minimal were the dietary requirements put on Israel. In most Bibles, Leviticus 11 is something less than two pages in length. Even when coupled with its counterpart in Deuteronomy 14, it'd be hard to fill three pages with kosher eating rules set down by God. Yet Jewish tradition has multiplied these basic, simple, and straightforward three pages of ordinance of God regarding eating into literally thousands of pages of complex rules and prohibitions stuffed into many volumes. Now, for those of us who wish to take God's Torah seriously, separating Hebrew traditions and rabbinic rulings as well as Christian dogma from the original words of Yehovah is not an easy or a very comfortable task. But you know, there's no need to make worship and learning sterile and bland. What to retain as useful and meaningful liturgy and teaching and what to set aside is difficult, but it's not impossible. Many traditions are beautiful and they're poignant, and they're full of truth and meaning. But others can send us down the wrong track if even on the surface it seems so good. Now, we have this exact challenge in dealing with Leviticus 16, which is primarily about the all-important God-ordained ritual observance. This called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, which is coming up very soon. Now, as I set about reading several of the enormous number of Hebrew commentaries on this chapter, it became apparent that precious few of them actually even directed themselves to Leviticus 16. Most simply explained the long-standing traditions and extensive rabbinical rulings that had developed over the centuries concerning the observance of Yom Kippur. Now, the most dramatic shift in how Yom Kippur was observed took place after 70 AD, when the city of Jerusalem and the Holy Temple were destroyed by the Roman armies. And the city was quickly 
rebuilt, but of course to this day, as you are well aware, the temple has not been rebuilt. So all the rituals that we've been studying in Leviticus, including the ones we're about to study, required the presence of the temple and its altars and the priesthood in order for them to be performed. Therefore, it's easy to imagine why, if the Jews were going to continue to practice these treasured feasts and holy day observances as they had for over a thousand years, to do so, even after there was no longer a temple that had always been the necessary center of these observances, they would have to reinvent and modify the way they interpreted these Levitical instructions. That said, it doesn't mean that they necessarily should have done that. What they were supposed to do was accept Yeshua as their Lord and Savior. What they should have done is to do what could be done without a physical temple and let the remainder go until the temple would be rebuilt as per Ezekiel and Revelation. So I would like to enter a caution to all of us before we take one more step into reading and understanding and digesting God's Torah. We must at all times separate God's laws in the scriptural Torah from what men, usually Hebrew men, has said about these particular laws in what is called the Oral Torah. Much of the carefully orchestrated liturgy that is followed by religious Jews today often has only very limited biblical connection. So coupled with the nearly 2,000 year old trend of Gentile believers wanting to remove any remnant of Jewishness from these same passages we find ourselves in modern times caught between the proverbial rock and hard place. The rock of Jewish tradition against the hard place of Christian allegorical interpretations in denial of the continuing existence of the Torah. Now, I'm certainly not in any way degrading or criticizing some of the beautiful and meaningful Jewish practices and ways of observing God's proclaimed holy days that the church would do well to pay attention to and maybe even consider adopting them in some form or another. But let's not get so caught up in our earnest desire to rediscover our Hebrew roots that we forget to distinguish between the consecrated things of God and the merely commendable things of men. Okay, let's see what God had to say about the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur. Open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 16. Adonai spoke with Moshe after the death of Aaron's two sons when they tried to sacrifice before Adonai and died. And Adonai said to Moses, Tell your brother Aaron not to just come at any time into the holy place beyond the curtain in front of the ark cover, which is on the ark, so that he won't die, because I appear in the cloud over the ark cover. Here is how Aaron is to enter the holy place, with a young bull as a sin offering and a ram as a bird offering. He's to put on the holy linen tunic 
Have the linen shorts next to his bare flesh. Have the linen sash wrapped around him and be wearing the linen turban. They are turban. They are holy garments. He's to bathe his body in water and then put them on. He is to take from the community of the people of Israel two male goats for a sin offering and one ram for a burnt offering. Aaron is to present the bull for the sin offering, which is for himself, and make atonement for himself and his household. He is to take the two goats and place them before Adonai at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Then Aaron is to cast lots for the two goats, one lot for Adonai, the other for Azazel. Aharon is to present the goats whose lot fell to Adonai and offer it as a sin offering. But the goat whose lot who fell to Azazel is to be presented alive to Adonai to be used for making atonement over it by sending it away into the desert for Azazel. Now Aaron is to present the bull of the sin offering for himself. He will make atonement for himself and his household. He is to slaughter the bull of the sin offering which is for himself. He's to take a censer full of burning coals from the altar before Adonai and with his hands full of ground, fragrant incense, bring it inside the curtain. He's to put the incense on the fire before Adonai so that the cloud from the incense will cover the ark cover which is over the testimony in order that he not die. He's to take some of the bull's blood, sprinkle it with his finger on the ark cover towards the east and in front of the ark cover, he is to sprinkle some of the blood with his finger seven times. Next, he is to slaughter the goat of the sin offering, which is for the people. Bring its blood inside the curtain and do with its blood as he did over the bull's blood, sprinkling it on the ark cover and in front of the ark cover. He will make atonement for the holy place because of the uncleanness of the people of Israel and because of their transgressions, all their sins. And he is to do the same for the tent of meeting, which is there with them, right in the middle of their uncleanness. No one is to be present in the tent of meeting from the time he enters the holy place to make atonement till the time he comes out, having made atonement for himself, for his household, and for the entire community of Israel. Then he is to go out to the altar that is before Adonai and make atonement for it. For he is to take some of the bull's blood, some of the goat's blood, and put it all on the horns of the altar. He used to sprinkle some of the blood on it with his finger seven times, thus purifying it and setting it apart from the uncleanness of the people of Israel. When he's finished atoning for the holy place, the tent of meeting, and the altar, then he's to present the live goat. Aaron's to lay both of his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the transgressions, crimes, sins of the people of Israel. He's to put them on the head of the goat and then send it away into the desert with a man appointed for that purpose. The goat will bear all their transgressions away to some isolated place. And he is to let the goat go into the desert. Aaron is to go back into the tent of meeting where he is to remove the linen garments he put on when he entered the holy place. He is to leave them there. Then he is to bathe his body in water in a holy place, put on his other clothes, come out, offer his burnt offering and the burnt offering of the people, thus making atonement for himself and for the people. He is to make the fat of the sin offering go up in smoke on the altar. The man who let go the goat for Azazel is to wash his clothes and bathe his body in water. Afterwards he may return to the camp. Now the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place is to be carried outside the camp. There, they're to burn up completely their hides, their meat, their dung, the person burning them is to wash his clothes, bathe his body in water. Afterwards, 
he may return to the camp. It is a permanent regulation for you that on the tenth day of the seventh month you are to deny yourselves not do any kind of work, both the citizen and the foreigner living with you. For on this day, atonement will be made for you to purify you. You will be clean before Adonai from all your sins. It is a Shabbat of complete rest for you, and you're to deny yourselves. This is a permanent regulation. The priest anointed and consecrated to be priest in his father's place will make the atonement. He will put on the linen garments, the holy garments. He will make atonement for the especially holy place. He will make atonement for the tent of meeting and the altar. And he will make atonement for the priest and for all of the people of the community. This is a permanent regulation for you to make atonement for the people of Israel because of all their sins once per year. Moses did as Adonai ordered him. Well, in Hebrew thinking, and rightfully so, there probably is no more important and necessary event as Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And in a nutshell, the biblically stated purpose of Yom Kippur is twofold. First, to purify the tabernacle, later the temple, from the uncleanness brought into it and its grounds by priests and commoners. And second, to purify the people, the priests and even the high priest. So the goal was to maintain a ritually pure sanctuary. Now this was because if Jehovah's earthly dwelling place were defiled, he would not maintain his presence there. It's impossible that his infinite holiness could cohabitate with earthly uncleanness. This is not an assumption because scripture clearly states that that's the case. Now, this original and biblical viewpoint that I was just mentioning the original and the biblical viewpoint was that the focus of Yom Kippur was to cleanse the tabernacle. Alright. But it event this whole idea eventually gave way after the destruction of the temple to this new viewpoint that Yom Kippur was primarily for judgment and for atonement of sin for the people of Israel. Not once, but twice, you know, the temple was destroyed. And the first time resulted in their exile to Babylon. And the second in their dispersion into the Roman Empire. Now, both times, the people of Israel found themselves in a position of being unable to be purified from their uncleanness and unable to have blood sacrifices to atone for their sins. Not satisfied with that condition, or willing, I suppose, to accept God's judgment on them and the eventual provision of restoration for them in his time, they began using their human intellect to devise ways around the problem. The result, in many cases, was tradition. So how exactly would the tabernacle become defiled with impurity? So defiled is that it needed to be cleansed when such scrupulous attention was paid to make sure that no uncleanness came anywhere near it. It could occur in a number of ways, actually, such as a priest not properly performing his duties but being ignorant of his error, 
or unclean food accidentally finding its way into the courtyard or someone dying in the tabernacle grounds or someone who touched someone who died now entering the tabernacle grounds. There's a multitude of ways. Leviticus chapters 11 through 15 gives extensive details on what constituted uncleanness and the fact is that uncleanness to some degree or another at some time or another was inevitable for every Israelite. I I think one reason we as modern believers are to be taught and to know about these rituals and rules even after Yeshua has transformed them is to help us grasp this eternal seriousness of uncleanness and that in our natural state, without God, there is simply no escaping its death grip upon us. Uncleanness is everywhere we turn. It's it's a state that people, non-believers at least, can enter into even through no personal moral failure. I mean, remember the unclean state that a woman enters into who simply gives birth. And and, and it can be contracted from even accidental contact with unclean people and things. There was and there remains no watertight connection between avoiding sin and by avoiding it, avoiding impurity. Now, as we read Leviticus 16 we can readily see just how involved and complex these particular rituals of Yom Kippur were and are. God makes it clear in the first verse just how dangerous of a job the high priest has. Verse 1 takes us back to chapter 10 in Leviticus when God roasted Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, in a public display of his wrath and the suddenness of his judgment that comes upon those who transgress his holiness. Even more so for those who have been set apart for that task. So at this point in Leviticus, the gruesome deaths of those two newly ordained priests was very recent. And in some ways, we have God explaining to Moses what Aaron's two sons did wrong. And how the other priest, and especially Aaron as the high priest, can avoid this uh, similar fate. In paraphrase, God tells Moses that no priest can enter the Holy of Holies. Into that chamber of God's presence, except when God calls him to do so. The penalty for disobedience to this command is death as if Moses and several thousand horrified witnesses hadn't already figured that one out on their own. Now let me pause for a moment to throw a bucket of cold water on a phrase sung in many beautiful Christian songs that we as believers now enter the Holy of Holies. This is not true. And it comes as a result of the church's insistence that the Old Testament be used as a doorstop but no longer studied as the word of God. As believers, we do not, metaphorically or otherwise, enter into the most holy chamber of God's sanctuary when we're saved. Common priests, which is what we are 
according to the New Testament, can only enter the outer chamber called the holy place. The holy of holies is still reserved for the Father and for his mediator, the high priest. The holy of holies is still reserved for Yeshua. Since the permanent mediator and the high priest is Yeshua, then it's he alone that can be in Yehovah's direct presence in the Holy of Holies. We as regular priests to Yeshua's high priest position are permitted to enter the sanctuary of God. But until these corrupt bodies are given up for transformed ones in the future or upon our death when only our cleansed and holified spirits are in heaven, we cannot get any closer to God than the equivalent of the holy place. We still have to work through Christ, who's in the holy of holies. Verse 3 says that when on that day, that one day per year, that Aaron and all his high priest successors to come in the following years were allowed and actually required to enter that Holy of Holies, a young bull for a hataat offering, the purification offering, would be required as what a ram for the olah, the burnt offering. And then next we find that the usual glorious garments that the high priest wore during his daily duties, which usually was a blue robe and a jeweled chest plate and gorgeous and costly fabrics, they were to be removed. And in their place, he was to just wear a simple white linen garment. And in front of the people, where the high priest performed his usual duties, the fabulous and expensive outfit he wore was his uniform. It let everybody know that he was the high priest, he was the holiest man in Israel. And that as God's mediator, he stood alone between God in Israel. But when standing in Jehovah's presence, that plain white clothing made of fine linen symbolized the lowly status that even the holiest man on earth bears in comparison to the incomparable holiness of the God of the universe. And of course, as we've now come to expect, and really as students who have come this far in Torah, we need to understand that it's a given that before Aaron dons these slaves' clothes, if you would, he's to be cleansed in water. He's to immerse himself in living water to remove his uncleanness. It is no coincidence that both Daniel and Ezekiel describe the angels who stand before the Lord as wearing plain white garments. Nor should we overlook the words of Revelation 19.8 as regards what someday we who are believers shall be wearing as we stand before the Lord. Revelation 19.8 And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean, for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Verses 5 and 6 shows us this dual nature 
of the Yom Kippur rituals. The people of Israel as a whole, as a nation, or as a congregation, are to supply two male goats as their national purification offering. The high priest, in this case Aaron, is to supply a young bull as his personal purification offering. We now begin to get the rules and ordinances for what has come to be called the scapegoat ritual. A very fascinating ritual that's just full of meaning and it's mesmerized the Jewish people for centuries. Now Aaron is to take both of these he-goats and stand them outside the temple sanctuary. Next he's to cast lots over the goats. And the outcome of the lots will determine which of those two goats will become the hata'at, the purification sacrifice for the purification of the people of Israel, and the other one will be the scapegoat that gets released out into the wilderness. And it's here in verse 8 that one of the more controversial phrases in the entire Bible is presented. And it says of this procedure for choosing these goats' fates, one lot for Yehovah, one lot for Az-Azel. Who or what is Az-Azel? Well, of this there is no end to debate. All right, not just among Christian but Jewish scholars as well. Now, most of your Bibles probably won't even have the word Azazel in them. Rather, the word scapegoat is usually substituted. But Azazel is the original Hebrew, and a good concordance will show you that reality. Now, part of the problem with this verse is that if it's taken in the most literal way, based on the customs of the time in which it was written, what it means isn't very comfortable for us. The more comfortable interpretations are generally two. First, that Azazel is a rare Hebrew noun meaning complete destruction. Second, is that the great Hebrew sage Rashi says that it means rocky precipice. As by the time of Christ, part of the traditional way of dealing with the scapegoat that was released was to push it backwards off of a cliff to its death. But these two interpretations really don't pass the smell test. First, there is no pushing off of a rocky precipice requirement in the scriptures. It was added many years later. And second, the only other mention of this indeed rare word, Azazel, in Hebrew literature is in the book of Enoch, which of course is not inspired, but rather forms part of what scholars call pseudo-epigraphic literature. And in Enoch, Azazel is the name of a specific demon. Now, the more widely and recently upheld opinion is that Azazel was indeed a name ascribed to a demon or some kind of evil spirit that lived out in the wilderness. And the idea we see developing in these verses is that one of the two goats is going to be a holy sacrifice on the bird offer, uh, 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 altar for Jehovah, and the other will be sent out into the wilderness into this unholy domain of Azazel, a demon who represents or might even be Satan. 
And we'll explore that a little more in a few minutes. Now, verse 10 makes something clear that as we revisit this Azazel matter shortly, it's an important ingredient. And it is that this goat, which is to be sent out to Azazel, it says, is to be left alive. In other words, this goat is not to be the slaughtered one, nor is it to be considered in any way a sacrifice. It is assumed, I suppose, that it will die out in the wilderness, but it is not to be ritually slaughtered. The goat that is for Jehovah, however, is indeed a sacrifice and it will be killed. Now, verse 11 tells us, that, tells us that once the lots have been drawn and the fate of each of these two goats is decided, the sacrificial bull for the purification offering of Aaron is to be slaughtered on behalf of him and his whole household. And then from the hot coals of that altar of the burnt offering where the bull's being burned up, Aaron's to take a fire pan full of those coals, add some special incense, and then go inside the sanctuary. Now the danger really begins for Aaron, the high priest, as he's about to enter into the presence of God, who is not going to tolerate one iota of uncleanness in his presence. Aaron takes his smoking fire pan, his censer, he pulls back the curtain, the parroquet, as it's called, from that separates the, the holy place from the holy of holies, and he enters now the earthly dwelling place of God. And as that lump in his throat rises, as he approaches the copperet, the mercy seat, and he lays the censer into it, Next to it, the smoke now, described as a cloud, engulfs the area between the wings of the cherubim that rise out of the mercy seat. This is the place that God's presence meets with man on earth once per year. Now, what is the importance of the smoke surrounding the mercy seat? Well, a couple of points come to mind. First, it's said that no man can look upon God's face and live. The smoke acted as a veil that permitted Aaron to face the Ark of the Covenant and the copperet to be present in the same room with God, yet that cloud of smoke obscured God so that Aaron could not look directly upon him. Second, the smoke as a cloud has some kind of obvious link to this constant mention that God traveled with Israel in the form of a cloud. Bottom line, the cloud of smoke was not for the benefit of God. It was a protection for the high priest lest he die. Now Aaron dips his finger into a, bo a bowl full of bull's blood. And he sprinkles some of that blood onto the front of the copperet, the mercy seat, the lid that sits atop the Ark of the Covenant. And we know it's the front side of the mercy seat where the blood is spattered because it's called the east end. And the Holy of Holies faces eastward. Next, Aaron does the same using exactly seven sprinkles, using the blood of the sacrificed goat. So the blood now from both sacrifices, the bull and the goat, is presented, and thus atonement is made for Aaron and for the whole congregation of Israel. And then verse 16 reminds us that the ultimate purpose for this procedure is to cleanse the sanctuary from the tumult. 
That is the uncleanness that's brought about by the Israelites, even those brought about by their sins. Remember that some uncleanness is not brought about by sin, some is. These rituals purge the tabernacle from every variety of uncleanness. Now I think the last few words and the last half of verse 16 are especially poignant. It says that God dwells with Israel even in the midst of their tumult, in the midst of all their uncleanness. Wow, what a great God. What a merciful God. Despite Israel's inherent uncleanness, God still chose to live in their midst for their benefit because he loved them. Only requiring that once per year his holy dwelling place be clean from all this man-made pollution that defiled it. Now, after the sanctuary is purged, other holy things need to be cleansed as well. So in verse 18, the altar of burnt offering has some of the bull and goat's blood applied to it. But then next in verse 20, we get this most amazing and highly visual demonstration of how our sin is taken from us transferred to a substitute which must be an innocent living creature then the sin is removed far away from us not just covered over we're rid of it basically then the Israelites using that scapegoat was a shadow of what Yeshua HaMashiach is going to do for us on a permanent basis Even the scapegoat ceremony, whereby all the Israelites could do was stand by helplessly in awe and watch as God did all that was needed to cleanse them from their sins is but a shadow of our position before him today. Aaron now lays both of his hands on the head of the scapegoat, the goat chosen for Azazel. And upon that goat, he confesses Israel's sins. All of Israel's transgressions for the past year since the previous year's Day of Atonement is laid on that animal. The weight of Israel's iniquities are placed onto the male goat, and then the goat is sent out into the wilderness, that barren desert never to return. So that brings us back to Azazel. It's thought that Azazel was the demon ruler of the desert wilderness. Now, if this smacks of magic and sorcery, then I'm afraid it just does. Okay. But just because magic and sorcery make perverted use of the divinely created spiritual world doesn't mean the spirit world doesn't exist. We know that the wilderness is often considered biblically as a place of wickedness and death, much as darkness, Hosek, is considered an evil trait. We, we read of demons being cast out, sent off into the wilderness, a dry place, a symbolically lifeless place. So now the question for us to wrestle with is this. Is Azazel intended to be symbolic of evil? Or is it literally the name of a real evil force 
a particular demon ruler, the ruler, the demon ruler of the wilderness. Now, before I offer my opinion on that, let's kind of get an overview of what's happening here. Two goats are chosen, one for God, the other for something that's obviously anti-God. Okay. The one that by lots is decided is for God, the one that's set apart for holiness, will be used as a sacrifice to the holy God. By its blood will the sins of Israel be atoned for. The other goat that is designated for that thing that's against God, this thing called Azazel, will be used as the depository and the carrier of Israel's sin and uncleanness. The high priest is the mediator for the people of Israel, ceremonially transfers all of their sin and uncleanness onto that scapegoat, the goat that's been designated as this depository of sin for Azazel. The scapegoat's then led out into the wilderness, the sin and the uncleanness of Israel is sent far away into the domain of the evil force. The Azazel of the book of Enoch was a fallen divine being, a Benai Elohim, also called the Son of God, who had relations with human women. He was given jurisdiction over magic and sorcery. His domain was the jagged rocks of the wilderness, and he was exiled to remain there under the watchful eye of a very powerful heavenly angel. Now let me state emphatically what I just told you, for the most part, is ancient Hebrew legend, but the vast majority of this is definitely in the book of Enoch. Yet it is valuable to us to at least understand what the Jewish view of Azazel, some hundred years before the birth of Christ was. Now it seems to me that what's being related here in Leviticus 16 about the scapegoat is that the source of all evil, Satan, is symbolized at the least by Azazel. And Azazel is forced into receiving back that which he had sent out into the world. Sin and uncleanness. Picture this goat supernaturally carrying with it all the iniquities of Israel that God has removed from them heading out into the devil's domain. This goat loaded up with everything the evil one had used to try and defeat God by means of defeating his people. I mean, it's kind of like the enemy, for you military folks, tossing a hand grenade over the fence, only for you to pick it up and throw it right back into his lap. And there's nothing he can do about it. In some ways, this scapegoat is a display of God's invincibility and the inevitability of God's plan for redemption. A demonstration for all to see that Satan simply cannot defeat God's plan. In my view, God in one respect is using this scapegoat ritual to mock Satan. Now a couple of other details. 
And then I'd like to make mention of how the observance of Yom Kippur has changed, especially since the temple was destroyed in 70 AD. Verses 25 through 28 describe how only certain parts of the Hatat sacrifice, the purification sacrifice, are to be burned up on the altar, and then all the other parts are to be taken outside the camp and burned up on a common wood fire. Only fat and certain cuts of meat and certain entrails were to be burned on the altar burnt offering. The hide, the contents of the bulls and goats intestines and the remaining portions of meat had to be removed from the holy precinct of Israel. The idea here is this. Those parts that are offered up to God were an ordained sacrifice. They were holy. The burning up of those parts sends up a sweet savor to God. It's a very positive, it's a very obedient thing to do. The remaining parts of those animal, which are animals which are taken outside the camp, are destroyed by fire. It's getting rid of the parts that are not for God that's being accomplished. Parts that aren't holy, they have no value. It's very similar in principle to this sending the scapegoat off into the wilderness whereby the things that are not of God or things that are not for God, sin and uncleanness, are sent right back to the adversary. Next, when the Day of Atonement is to occur, is specified for us. It's to be on the tenth day of the seventh month of the year. And on this day, there's to be a special Sabbath, kind of a super Sabbath. Now let me be clear. This is not the seventh day Sabbath that's being talked about here. It's a different Sabbath for a different purpose. Unlike the seventh day Sabbath, which is to be a day of joy and good eating, the day of atonement Sabbath is a day, the Bible says, to afflict yourselves. To deny yourself. Okay. This is not talking about harming yourself. Okay. This is talking about simply depriving yourself. And the deprivation starts with fasting. Okay. A, a, a definite departure from the seventh day Shabbat where a large and joyous meal is served. And if I were to use a familiar word for the motto of the Yom Kippur Sabbath, it would be abstain. Abstain from food, work, drink, bathing, sex. If you like it, don't do it. Okay. Further, for those who continue to want to say, oh yes, but this was only for Israel. Yeah, well, just look what it says in verse 29. This is for the native and for the foreigner that sojourns in your midst. This is non-native people it's speaking about, who have joined Israel. Even slaves who have not joined Israel, but are living among Israel. And they're all to observe and benefit from this special Sabbath for Yom Kippur. Because they are, in God's eyes, part of the community of Israel, so they too must have their uncleanness purged and their sins atoned for on this amazing day. Finally, it is made clear that Yom Kippur is not a temporary ordinance. As it says in verse 34, this is a law for the ages. It's permanent. Now, 
Let's very briefly see how the observance of Yom Kippur has evolved since its instruction in verse, uh, rather Leviticus 16. Modern religious Jews continue to honor Yom Kippur as the holiest and most important of all the feast days. But somewhere along the line since its inception, rabbis, who eventually controlled the religion of the Hebrews, decided that on the Day of Atonement, God supposedly judges that person for what they've done for the past year and determines whether that person's name is going to be written into the Book of Life for the coming year. And that judgment is sealed. The judgment process begins ten days earlier on Rosh Hashanah, Jewish New Year. And for the ten-day period in between Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur, a person is supposed to spend much time on inner reflection and then sincerely repent as a preparation for the Day of Judgment. Now, because Yom Kippur is so serious and sober, weddings are traditionally not even held during that ten days of penitence. Special charity is given to the poor on Yom Kippur. Members of some orthodox sects will wear all-white garments on Yom Kippur, an obvious link to the high priest's garments. Okay. And unlike any other day of the year, Jewish men will wear talit, prayer shawls, at evening synagogue services. Under all other circumstances, by the way, prayer shawls are used only for morning synagogue services. So much has changed regarding Yom Kippur. Once it was seen as a national day of purification and repentance, now it's very individualistic in its orientation. As there was no temple after 70 AD, the Jews have kind of found themselves in a bind. How do they become cleansed from their uncleanness and have their sins atoned for if there's no temple to sacrifice at and no high priest to make atonement for them? Sometime around 800 AD, a ritual sprung up among some Jews that many Orthodox groups continue to this day. It's called Kaparot. In this ritual, a male chooses a rooster, a female chooses a hen, and chickens are literally swung around over the heads of the Jewish worshiper three times while they pray out loud, this is my substitute. This is my vicarious offering, my atonement. This chicken shall meet death that I shall find a long and pleasant life of peace. I don't think I need to comment on that much. Another modern view is that the Day of Atonement's series of Levitical rituals, or rather what, it, what they used to accomplish, those rituals, is today brought about by prayer, repent, repentance, and the doing of good deeds. Okay. In fact, even the concept of original sin whereby all humans, including Israelites, are born with a sin nature, this has given way to a belief that everyone starts life as good and pure, and it's entirely possible to keep it that way all of your days. 
Okay. Of course, by asserting this instead of the truth, that means that salvation, as we think of it, isn't even necessary, provided a man can maintain the clean and holy condition he was born in, that indeed a man can find righteousness on his own. That a man can be self-justified if he follows the Torah scrupulously. Now, recognizing that certain sins are considered much more serious than others, Judaism says that grave sins, such as profaning God's name, cannot be atoned for by simple repentance, nor by prayer, nor by observing the modern-day traditions even of the Day of Atonement. Rather, it is one's own death that atones for the gravest of sins. So when death, you've paid the price for your uncleanness and sin and are henceforth clean and able to live in the world to come. You know, it's really amazing and sad what length people, Israel, Jews, Gentiles, will go to to avoid accepting Messiah Yeshua. Let's end this tonight by reading a New Testament passage that explains beautifully what Yom Kippur is for and how Yeshua HaMashiach will fulfill it and has already fulfilled some aspects of it. Now that we have a much better idea of what these Levitical sacrifices and rituals are about, I think you're going to find Hebrews 9, chapter 9, much more understandable and meaningful. So turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 9. We're going to read it all, and we'll close. Hebrews chapter 9. Now, the first covenant had both regulations for worship and a holy place on earth. A tent was set up, the outer one, which was called the holy place in it. In it were the menorah, the table, and the bread of presence. Behind the second, Paroket, was a tent called the holiest place, which had the golden altar for burning incense and the Ark of the Covenant, entirely covered with gold. In the ark were the gold jar containing the manna, Aaron's rod that sprouted in the stone tablets of the covenant, and above it were the cherubim representing the Shekinah, casting their shadow on the lid of the ark, but now is not the time to discuss these things in detail. With things so arranged, the priests uh, go into the outer tent all the time to discharge their duties, but only the high priest enters the inner one. And he goes in once a year and he must always bring blood, which he offers both for himself and for the sins committed in ignorance by the people. By this arrangement, the Holy Spirit showed that so long as the first tent had standing, the way into the holiest place was still closed. This symbolizes the present age and indicates that the conscience of the person performing the service cannot be brought to the goal by the gifts and sacrifices he offers. For they involve food and drink and various ceremonial washings, regulations concerning the outward life, imposed until the time for God to reshape the whole structure. But when the Messiah appeared as high priest of the good things that are happening already, then through the greater and more perfect tent, which is not man-made, that is, it's not created of this world, 
he entered the holiest place once and for all. And he entered not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus setting people free forever. For if sprinkling, sprinkling ceremonially unclean persons with the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer restores their outward purity, then how much more the blood of the Messiah, who through the eternal spirit offered himself to God as a sacrifice without blemish, will purify our conscience from works that lead to death so that we can serve the living God. It is because of this death that he is mediator of a new covenant, because a death has occurred which sets people free from the transgressions committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promised earthly inheritance. For well, where there is a, a will, there must necessarily be produced evidence of its maker's death, since a will goes into effect only upon death. It never has a force while its maker is still alive. This is why the first covenant, covenant too, was inaugurated with blood. After Moses had proclaimed every command of the Torah to all the people, he took the blood of the calves with some water, used some scarlet wool, hyssop, to sprinkle both the scroll itself and all the people, and he said, This is the blood of the covenant which God has ordained for you. Likewise, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the things used in its ceremonies. In fact, according to the Torah, Almost everything is purified with blood. Indeed, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this is how the copies of the heavenly things had to be purified. But the heavenly things themselves require better sacrifices than these. For the Messiah has entered the holiest place, which is not man-made and merely a copy of the true one, but into heaven itself in order to appear now on our behalf in the very presence of God. Further, he did not enter heaven to offer himself over and over again like the high priest who enters the holiest place year after year with blood that's not his own. For then he would have had to suffer death many times from the founding of the universe on. But as it is, he has appeared once at the end of the ages in order to do away with sin through the sacrifice of himself. Just as human beings have to die once, but after this comes the judgment, so also the Messiah, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time. Not to deal with sin, but to deliver those who eagerly wait for him. It is, as I said, you'll notice earlier in this lesson that it was Messiah Yeshua who was entered the Holy of Holies, not us. And the real Holy of Holies is not on earth. It was never on earth. It's in heaven. Up to the death of Yeshua, all of the sacrificial rituals had been a shadow of things that would come. They indeed served their immediate purpose and indeed did atone for sins prior to the advent of Jesus. But Yeshua was going to take it all to another and higher level by means of his own blood. Next week, we're going to talk a little more 
about Yom Kippur and then move into Leviticus 17 that begins a series of chapters that speaks of the basic principles of two important aspects of Israel's existence that are actually very closely coupled food and sacrifice. 